The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Experience the difference. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. better get healthy and help animals welcome to main street vegan with your host victoria moran she said i embarked on a great adventure and that is to do in my life everything that i believe in in my heart it didn't happen all at once But whenever I found myself doing something that I shouldn't be doing, I stopped. And whenever I saw that there was something that I should be doing that I wasn't doing, I started. And that made all the difference. If you want to know more about Peace Pilgrim, a wonderful (laughs) vegan in her day, you can go to peacepilgrim.org. I'm Victoria Moran, your host for this program, and the reason that I chose the Peace Pilgrim quote today is because both of our guests are profoundly living up to the good things that they believe in. After the break, we're going to meet Tyler Lobdell of the Animal Legal Defense Fund, and now I am honored, in fact, humbled, to introduce a Shiro for Animals and a role model for anyone who aspires to live their truth. She is Anita Krajnik, co-founder of Toronto Pig Save and the Worldwide Save Movement, which bears witness to animals going to slaughter using a Tolstoyan and Gandhian love-based community organizing approach. Welcome, Anita. Hi, Victoria. Thank you so much. A pleasure to be here. Oh, It is a pleasure to be living on Earth at the same time as you. You are truly a role model for me, and I'm so grateful that we're having this time to talk, and especially that you can speak to some listeners who maybe don't know yet about the SAVE movement and the wonderful things that you guys do. So just what is bearing witness, and why is it important? Bearing witness means that when you see someone suffering, um, like an animal, um, you have a choice. You either look the other way or you come close and you try to help. And I'm basically paraphrasing Leo Tolstoy, who, who, who said this in the 1800s. Um, and it's important because it's an incredibly powerful form of animal activism to actually see the animals that you're fighting for firsthand. 
there's nothing like actually, you know, going to a slaughterhouse and seeing the pigs, cows, chickens, lambs, turkeys, and other animals uh, in the trucks, full of fear, um, asking for help, and 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 being present there for them, and telling them you love them, and trying to tell their story to the rest of the world. So when we're at these vigils, um, we're there for them, but we're also taking photos and videos and sharing it with the world so people see that all these animals are individuals and they want to live just like we do. Um, you know, before I started doing these vigils, I, I just had this imaginary conception of uh, pigs being all the same. But when you go to, and, and witness these animals firsthand and you look in their eyes, you see that they're all individuals. And I think that's one of the most important things that the Save Movement has done is just help people see uh, all these individuals, tell their stories. And, um, you know, once, once you're there and learn about that, you, you want to fight even more and you make it more of a priority in your life to try to help these animals. Wow. So how did Toronto Pig Save start? Well, Toronto Pig Save started in 2010 after I adopted a dog, Mr. Bean, a beagle whippet mix. Um, I had lived near a slaughterhouse in downtown Toronto for four years already, and I was an, a vegan and an activist. And whatever I passed at that, that slaughterhouse uh, uh, on, 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 on the streetcar, I would think, oh, somebody should do something. I would see the chimney stacks in the distance. And I never actually went up to the slaughterhouse. And then when I adopted Mr. Bean, we would walk on Lakeshore every day, and we would see the trucks with the pigs on them, and the pigs looking out fearful and terrified and I just couldn't believe it and and that's when we organized a bunch of meetings and set up Toronto Pig Save and the first time I actually went up close to a truck and uh, looked inside and pig looked back at me I promised that pig that we would do a minimum of three vigils a week and we kept that promise so in the Toronto area we've done over a thousand vigils. This is so fascinating to me, and it also says why slaughterhouses tend to not be in populated areas, <laughs> because they just might run into an Anita. So yeah. you have not had a completely smooth run with this. Um, somebody decided that what you were doing was illegal. What happened? So we, we would do these vigils, and the first couple of years, uh, we noticed that, you know, the animals were thirsty, but we didn't give them water. I think we were fearful or we just didn't uh, didn't know how that would go. And then finally, um, someone else brought some fruit. Paul, an activist, brought some fruit for the cows. And the cows didn't really eat the fruit. But then we other people, we started bringing the fruit, uh, watermelon, and water to the pigs. And the pigs did drink the water. And we we were doing that for a couple of years before I got charged for giving water to thirsty pigs. So in 2015, well, we, we just had a regular vigil in the summer's heat, and the temperature was uh, in the high 20s in Celsius. So in Fahrenheit, that would be, I don't know, maybe in the high 90s or something like that. And I, gave, I said, let's give them water. And then what was unusual is the truck driver jumped out of the cab and said, don't give them water. And I said, I quoted, uh, Jesus in Matthews in the Bible said, when I was thirsty, you gave me water. And he said, they're not human, you dumb freaking broad. And then, he, then they, I, I was shocked, but they actually 
charged me with criminal mischief interference with property, the property being the pigs. And so it became known as the pig trial. And I had two vegan lawyers representing me pro bono, and they were brilliant lawyers who turned the case around and put animal agriculture on trial. And one of my lawyers, James Silver, said, compassion is not a crime. <laughs> you know, we use that as a hashtag. And it became a big story on social media. And there were like hundreds of thousands of people that signed a petition. And then the video went viral. And then it also became a media story. Um, what's interesting is how much the media liked to cover a trial because there's all these, you know, points of access. And they just thought it was a really interesting case. Like it's, it's you know, the idea of giving water to a thirsty animal is something that is a universal idea. It's a timeless idea. So uh, I think it had a lot of traction. Like the, the public, I mean, the, 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 sympathized with this case. There, I, you know, whenever I take a, an Uber or a cab, most, most of the cab drivers in Toronto know my case. <laughs> so, you know, it was a huge story in, in, in Canada. And, uh, you know, we half won the, the battle. Uh, you know, I, at the end, I was acquitted. But what was um, not great is that the, the judge said that pigs are property. So he did not move on that important point that we were really fighting for. Like to, we, my lawyers were arguing that pigs are persons, you know, sort of following up on, you know, Stephen Weiss's non-human rights project where he's fighting for personhood of chimps and other animals. So we were trying to push that idea and to move the law forward on that. And we had all these amazing um, expert witnesses, including Dr. Lori Marino, who has who, who uh, uh, wrote a, a, a review of all the articles on pig sentience. And she's currently working on the whale sanctuary project. Um, so she came and we had all these other expert witnesses and we made a really strong case for pigs being persons. So were you afraid? And if so, what did you do with that? Um, it, I, I was, I was anxious at the beginning. Uh, and uh, what was wonderful is that at the pretrial stage already, we would have vigils before the court, before the trial. So, um, so people, there would be like 30 people, you know, <laughs> even at the pretrial stage. And then once we got to the trial stage, there would be like 100 supporters. And, and the, the, the courtroom was so packed that the media had to sit in the prisoner's box. Um, and so <laughs> the fact that I had all that support made it like I didn't feel I was fighting alone. So like the fear dissipated, the anxiety dissipated after the first pretrial because there were like, at that stage already, there were like dozens of supporters and we really felt we were fighting for this together. Plus I had like two top vegan lawyers, like they're senior criminal lawyers. Uh, and uh, yeah, they did a brilliant job. Wow. So I, I, yeah, it's almost the fear like dissipated pretty quick. Uh. It's like instant karma. It's almost what you did for the pigs, people in turn did for you. Absolutely. Interesting. I mean, oh, absolutely. Wow. Yeah, there was, uh, I was surprised and overwhelmed at the amount of support on so many different levels. Um, you know, from, from Gary Grill and James Silver, the lawyers who d dedicated so much of their time and their brilliance to the case. And then PETA supported early on. 
and help make it a big uh, sort of story. And then just the, the public, you know, just the activists on the ground and in social media. There's, there and then even the public and the media, like the media coverage was so positive. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, because I think the story is such a, you know, such a simple story. It's, it's, it's this idea of giving water to a thirsty bee, an animal. I mean, it's something that every, every decent human, every decent person will, you know, would support. And so we tried to, you know, broaden the focus to beyond something like just giving water and the golden rule to ideas of, you know, challenging the, the, the charge, which said that I, I interfered with property. And, uh, you know, and, and so, we, you know, we're, we're, that is an ongoing battle, trying to fight to overturn this idea that animals are property. Yes, it'll happen. It's just how long it's going to take remains to be seen. Yeah. But there are plenty of people working, and certainly the SAVE movement, which now has gone far beyond Toronto and, and is all over the world. I know that you say that you were influenced by Tolstoy and by Gandhi. And when I was first looking at veganism back in the 1970s, there was so much Gandhi in this movement. It was really, really? a movement of nonviolence. Wow. Jay Dinshaw yeah. was a really modeled his life on Gandhian teachings and because he was the co-founder of the American Vegan Society and basically for Americans at that time, the only game in town for information about veganism, Gandhi and that whole Mm -hmm. sense of of truth power and resisting wrong and nonviolent resistance. I mean, it was just through and through the movement. But until I got your introduction for today, I don't think in the six years that I've been doing this program, anybody has mentioned his name on, on their forms. So I'm interested in how Gandhi and also Tolstoy came to impact you in the SAVE movement. So uh, I, I used to teach a course at the university level called Social Movement Strategies and Tactics. Every week we would look at a different strategy, such as direct action, public education, protest art, community organizing. And I had asked students to read Gandhi's autobiography, um, My Experiments with Truth. And uh, so I, I, I was sort of, uh, I, I had a strong background in understanding sort of social movement strategies and tactics. And I had read um, maybe 20, 30 books on Gandhi. He, he wrote a number of books in English, including Satyagraha in South Africa and Hind Swaraj and his autobiography. And there have been so many other wonderful books about him. And um, I, I became a big follower of Tolstoy as well. He was an ethical vegetarian. And he also was a proponent of love and nonviolence. He wrote a book called um, The Kingdom of God is Within You. And it was published in 1894. Three and Gandhi had read it while he was in South Africa. He, Gandhi was in South Africa for about 20 years before he went to in, back to India. And uh, Gandhi was so impressed by this book, he said it confirmed his commitment to nonviolence. And I, I just, uh, I think, you know, exactly what you said, like this commitment to truth and resisting violence and returning love for hate. Um, 
are such powerful ideas and they have influenced many social movements. And I, I, when, when I, when we started Toronto Pig Safe, uh, we wanted to inform the movement by the, you know, by the philosophies of Leo Tolstoy and Gandhi. And so we have a guidebook and we, we recommend that people that our new organizers read, you know, Gandhi's autobiography. There's another book by Tolstoy that's very good. It's called The Calendar of Wisdom. And in that book, he defines bearing witness. There's, so each day of the year, he has sayings on truth, sharing, kindness, you know, nonviolence, things like that. And he has a number of days that are dedicated to animals. And on, on you know, one day, he defines bearing witness. He says, when the suffering of another animal causes you to feel pain, don't succumb to the initial desire to flee from the suffering one, but on the contrary, come closer, as close as you can, and try to help. And when I read that, I thought, wow, this is exactly what we're doing, you know, in, 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 in the safe movement. Uh, you know, uh, you're trying to help. And, you know, so we're partially bearing witness at our vigils uh, because to fully bear witness, you would help them the way the animals want to be helped. And that is, you know, to free them. And we, we do, we ha the same movement rescues hundreds of animals each year. Um, so anyway, so these figures, along with others who have been inspired by them, informed us. So Cesar Chavez was a big follower of Gandhi. And his movement, he was a vegan, by the way, and his movement, United Farm Workers, is also an inspiration to us. So we use specific approaches that they use. Like they would have expanding team leadership. They would have uh, direct action, you know, on the field to help organize the undocumented farm workers. But they would also have urban campaigns targeting the middle class. So they would, like, introduce uh, boycotts against table grapes and wine to help mobilize support for their efforts to unionize the workers. And so, and they would use methods like expanding team leadership. And that approach has informed the safe movement. So when we have new groups, we always say, you know, it's not one leader. We use, you know, we, we, we encourage groups to develop a team and an expanding team of leaders. And we use a community organizing approach, um, very much based on Gandhi's ideas, where you know, you encourage leadership in others. So a good leader encourages leadership in others. And in a community organizing approach, everyone is a leader. And so it's just that philosophy is how you see people, you see the potential in them, you know, to be leaders. And we need, you know, more and more leaders in the animal rights movement so that we can you know, change the world so that there, there is respect and love for animals and that they're treated as equals. It's very interesting that you had to go through the process of arrest and trial, which happened to Gandhi so many times. And, yeah, yeah of course, he's considered almost universally as, as one of the heroes of um, modern history. So are there any terms of your acquittal that you're not supposed to give water to any more animals? Absolutely not. So that's that's oh, what great. I, you know, that was the partial victory that we won is that, uh, we won that right to give water wow. uh, to thirsty animals. And around the world, groups do that. We mm -hmm. have a, almost 500 groups in 55 countries now. Oh, and, wow. And there, was, yeah, and there was phenomenal growth after the trial. So the trial really helped because we got yeah. more support after that. 
And so yeah. we were able to send out organizing teams around the world to spread the movement. And currently, we have teams of people like going town to town, country to country, setting up groups. Um, so most groups don't have an issue giving water. There are some safe chapters where the slaughterhouse says, you know, you can we can stop, you know, we're fine with the trucks stopping. You can bear witness, but do not touch the pigs, do not give water. And, and you know, some groups have agreed to those terms, but the vast majority have not. And, and even those groups that have agreed to those terms, I encourage them not to, because I think that the slaughterhouse is just trying to intimidate um, activists from doing what is right. And, and the reality is like when we give water to pigs, that it's just so important to do. Like they're, they're, they're literally dying of heat and, and, and dehydration during heat waves. Like currently there, there was a huge heat wave in, in Toronto. And, um, and also it's funny how the public relates so much to that, those images. Our most viral videos in the movement are ones where we're giving water to pigs. So we have a video on Gary TV on Facebook that has almost 20 million views. Um, LA Animal Save has a video of, that shows how horribly thirsty the pigs are and it has you know, six, seven million views. Um, so I think you know, this idea of giving water to thirsty animals is, is a key part of, of what the safe movement does. It's a wonderful thing. And when I think of the SAVE movement, there's one particular image that always comes to mind, the pig with his or her face there near the bars of the truck and that bottle of water. And even that is so powerful that I know a lot of uh, environmental people don't drink water from plastic bottles, and I admire that. But when I think of a bottle of water like Poland Spring or whatever with one of those little pull-up caps on it, that's what people do. That's what people have at the gym. That's a very human thing. And here is this sweet, beautiful pig appreciating that water. It just We're so close. They are us. It's so powerful, Absolutely. Anita. Oh, I feel a little bit like I'm talking to Gandhi. So if someone wants to start a save group in some place where there isn't one, which sounds like a, a rapidly diminishing number of places, what do they do? Well, what, what we ask them to do is uh, to send us an email at savemovementinfo@gmail.com, or go to our website, thesavemovement.org, and contact us. And we have a 15-page guidebook uh, that walks them through the process of setting up a group and then we set up a chat with them and then we help them with our through our graphics team in setting up a logo for them and then we ask them to set up social media accounts on Facebook and Instagram and then organize their first vigil and so we, we walk them through it step by step and it's it's not hard to do it, and there is a lot of room for growth. So, for example, in the United States, there are 6,000 slaughterhouses, and we have just over 100 groups. Our aim is to have vigil at every slaughterhouse. And unfortunately, there are probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of slaughterhouses on the planet. And so we only have 500 groups, but we are growing exponentially. And, uh, you know, when people do their first vigil, we ask that they contact the media, because a lot of times their uh, groups get great media coverage for their first vigil. And uh, yeah, so our, our goal is to grow 
you know, grow across the world and we're in 55 countries, but there, there is a lot of room for growth, especially in Asia. In Asia, we only have uh, less than 10 groups. Uh, and we are trying to find a way to expand in India and potentially in China. We do have a group called Hong Kong Pig Save, which is very active. And, uh, but we'd like to, we need, and we have a group in Calcutta that has done a few vigils, but we, there's a lot of room for growth in, in that region. This is amazing. And yes, let's grow it. What is that email again, please, Anita? It's, thank you, it's savemovementinfo at gmail. So just save uh, movement save, info save at, yeah. at gmail.com. Okay, excellent. Okay, well, I will website. include... Yeah. Yeah. The, the website the to do is to go to our website. Okay. So the website is thesavemovement.org. Correct. The Gmail yeah. is just savemovementinfo without the the. Yeah, that's right. Okay. All right. I want to be clear, <laughs> and all this will go on the show notes if you go to mainstreetvegan.net. It's a little confusing sometimes for people, and we have to change this because if you click on the picture that says podcast you get taken to the archives for the podcast. So you have to just pick on the word podcast and you'll get a little drop down. And one of the things that you'll see is show notes. And this will have all the information about Toronto Pig Save, the Save Movement, finding them on social media all over, Save Movement or The Save Movement, any place you want to look, but we'll get all the specifics there for you. So finally, Anita, in just our last minute and a little bit, what would you say to somebody who's just on the fence, like, oh, gosh, this is good, but this is not me. I don't go out like that. What do you say to that person? Um, I say that uh, I would refer to Tolstoy, and he said um, meaning in life is uh, obtained from you know, service to others, ministering to the suffering, giving water to the thirsty. A lot of people say, I, I can't go to a vigil. I'm too emotional. It's too difficult. Um, and, you know, it, the best thing that ever happened to me and to a lot of people in, in, our, in the movement is uh, having gone vegan and become an activist. Uh, it, it just makes your life so much more meaningful. And I guarantee it will make you less depressed. I was more depressed about the state of the world before I started getting super active in Toronto Pig Save and the Safe Movement. So I think it will bring meaning to your life. It will make you a happier person. And you're ma- because you're actually making a change in the world. Uh, That's and wonderful. And you have so much power. Wow. Anita Krasnick, Safe Movement. You are a saint. Stay with us. We'll be back after these messages. Thanks. All are welcome. We're glad you found us. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. If you've been inspired by the programming on Unity Online Radio, we hope you will give your support so others may be inspired too. This online radio network depends on the support of listeners like you to continue operating and expand its outreach. 
Go to unityonlineradio.org and click on Donate today. Here's a Unity Meditation Minute with Paulette Pipe. So as always, we begin our time of meditation by first taking account of what we're feeling, those sights that we're seeing, those sensations that we're experiencing, and each breath that we breathe. Notice where in your body you're experiencing those sensations. Let your breathing find its own rhythm. As we begin the process of letting go, the process of relaxation. Remember why we're here. To hear more from Paulette Pipe and Touching the Stillness, visit the archives section at unityonlineradio.org. Since 1924, Daily Word has offered inspiration and practical teachings through daily prayer messages to help people of all faiths live happy, healthy lives. The magazine includes two months of daily affirmations, messages, articles, and spiritual poetry to help you get inspired. Subscriptions are available for print editions in large type and Spanish, as well as the digital subscription package that includes the online magazine with audio, smartphone app, and daily email. Get your subscription today. Visit dailyword.com or unity.org. What if you could start each day with a positive outlook, remembering you are a divine expression of God? Daily Word is a booklet of daily devotionals offering positivity that's downright contagious. With a print subscription or by email, you can pause to reflect on how to practice spirituality in your human experience. Reading Daily Word takes about a minute a day, so you can feel uplifted every morning. Visit dailyword.com to subscribe. More and more people are interested in a vegan lifestyle, and the numbers continue to grow. Join Victoria Moran every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central for Main Street Vegan and learn how to make the shift to help animals and the planet. Each week, Victoria shares recipes, health tips, and interviews with celebrity vegans, experts, and activists. Learn how to make a difference for animals and the planet at every meal. Right here on Unity Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Call now with your question or comment. 816-251-3555. That's 816-251-3555. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Hey, everybody, we have a few announcements. If you're new to the program, you can find out more about Main Street Vegan at our site, MainStreetVegan.net. And there you can subscribe to our newsletter and our blog and be in the Main Street Vegan inner circle. And if you do that, you will receive a helpful PDF called Three Steps to Rocking a Vegan Lifestyle. Our blog this week is from Main Street Vegan Academy Certified Coach Alyssa Miller. It's a very unique subject. It's about making our online outreach accessible to people who have hearing or visual impairments. So if you're an activist or a blogger or somebody on social media, do check this out because we want everybody 
to learn about these ideas and learn about these issues. Now, speaking of inner circles, you can also join our new private Facebook group called Main Street Vegan Podcast Listeners, where we can get personally acquainted, where we can chat about the show's topics, and you can let me know what you like and what you want more of. And I think you probably will want more of what my next guest has to talk about because he is so on top of so many issues that are integral to the compassion movement at large. He is Tyler Lobdell, a food law fellow for the Animal Legal Defense Fund, the nation's preeminent legal advocacy organization for animals. Now, Tyler's work is focused on opportunities to improve the welfare of animals used for the production of food products and also to increase transparency in the food industry and ensure that consumers have access to cruelty-free and plant-sourced alternatives. Welcome, Tyler Lobdell. Thank you so much, Victoria. I really appreciate you having me on the show. It is wonderful to have you. You know, whenever anything legal is going on about animals, the Animal Legal Defense Fund is always there. You guys are amazing, so God bless you, and thanks so much for all you do. So this morning, uh, when I went out with my dog, I saw all these adorable little children in their little charter school uniforms going back to school. So I wonder how many of them are going to have vegan options for school lunches. What do you know about that? Yeah, that's a great question, Victoria. And um, very few of them is the short answer to your question. So um, the National School Lunch Program, which is sort of the federal overarching um, apparatus that states utilize to access funding from the federal government to provide um, free, low-cost meals to students at public schools and, and nonprofit schools. And that apparatus, um, for a variety of reasons, makes it really difficult to have fully vegan uh, meal options or meal plans. Um, and so the primary hurdle to a fully vegan meal is that the federal government, through the National School Lunch Act and subsequent updates to that, requires that fluid dairy milk uh, be offered every day to students. Um, so sort of in a, a small nutshell, um, that's from a regulatory and federal perspective why it can be really, really challenging for local school administrators to, to make a move to either a fully vegan day or multiple days or even having a vegan option available. So. Now, when I was in school, which was admittedly a long time ago, not only was the milk offered, it was required. You had to drink it. Mm -hmm. And now in the days of knowing that lots of kids have allergies and, you know, religious issues and whatever it is, is that still required? Can they do that? Yeah. So that could be the case in some schools still. So there's what's called, and I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about two points here that go to your question. The first is that schools um, have the discretion to implement what's called offer versus serve. And, and I should say that discretion is afforded to certain age groups. Um, high school level, essentially, this is a required mandate of the program. And offer versus serve just says that while the school must offer each of the five components that makes up the meal plan in the National School Lunch Program, students aren't required to take each of those five components on their on their tray. So as you were describing, without the offer versus serve um, program in place, you're correct. A student is actually required to walk away from the lunch line with 
dairy milk on their tray, um, regardless of their you know ability or interest in actually consuming that milk. Um, the other sort of apparatus that's now available or mechanism that's now available to parents is ever since 2010, when the most recent update to the National School Lunch Program was put into law, parents now have the option to submit essentially a permission slip on behalf of their student, which says that their student has you know, either a medical or a, quote, um, special dietary need that requires them to have access to a non-dairy milk alternative. Um, and those special dietary needs um, you know, do include an ethical vegan lifestyle or even just a vegan preference because of health reasons or whatever else. So simply being a vegan and living a plant-based lifestyle is sufficient for a parent to submit one of these request forms and their student should then be afforded a non-dairy option. And is this across the board, all across the U.S.? That's correct. So, well, any school that's participating in the National School Lunch Program, yes, that's correct. Okay. And schools are not allowed to categorically deny this option. It must be made on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, so a school can't just tell all of its um, students and families that, that they aren't going to make this available. It has to be a case-by-case -case determination. Cost is an acceptable grounds for a school to deny an accommodation, but that would be very rare, especially given that they would be doing it on a case-by-case -case basis. So I see. So how does the Animal Legal Defense Fund get involved in school lunches? Yeah, so our sort of work um, since I've been with the ALD, uh, Animal Legal Defense Fund, which has only been for about a year now, um, has been focused on, I guess I'll say, uh, the 10,000-foot view. So we have submitted comments to the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the U.S. Health and Human Services um, regarding the development of the 2020 to 2025 dietary guidelines. So those are, you know, the very tip of the dietary guidelines iceberg that most folks are probably familiar with is the my plate or what used to be the food pyramid. So underneath that is a, a pretty robust set of recommendations that go on to inform a whole variety of federal supplemental nutrition programs, including the National School Lunch Program and the School Breakfast Programs and what have you. So we've been advocating to those agencies to shape the new dietary guidelines in a way that focuses on the, the health benefits of a plant-based diet, does adequate research into the health um, risks associated with processed meats and various other animal-based products. Um, and really, you know, encouraging them to put uh, a vegan sort of meal plan front and center so that um, not only do folks have the appropriate education on how to put together a healthy meal um, when you're a vegan, but also to educate folks who maybe not be thinking about the benefits of a plant-based diet. Am I correct that with the plate as it is right now, it can be vegan because there's a glass of milk there, but then it says down in the small print, this can be soy milk or another alternative. And, and in the what used to be the meat section, it's meat, legumes, tofu. Is that how it is right now? That's right. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. Um, I, I think our perspective is that the visualization is what most folks sort of walk away with and the message yes. that they take. And yes. so the, the, the glass of, of dairy milk being a part of that representation um, sort of reinforces what's been a very long-standing belief in this country that, you know, dairy milk is 
an essential part to a healthy diet, and without it, you're going to have health problems, which is you know scientifically unfounded, but very uh, deeply embedded in our in our culture. And so, even just that visual representation, we think, has has the effect of reinforcing that sort of misconception. But you're absolutely correct. It and and so within that iceberg, they do have what are called healthy patterns. So healthy. American diet pattern, healthy vegan or a healthy vegetarian pattern, but they didn't have and, and haven't yet had a healthy vegan pattern, which would really lay out all the nutritional requirements and how best to meet those with a purely plant-based diet. Because currently, the vegetarian pattern does include uh, cheese and other dairy products. So yes, well, I love what you said about the visual especially in schools, because it's those images that we get into our heads early on that stay with us forever. And to this day, and I've been vegan 35 years, but if somebody says, balanced meal, I see this poster from the lunchroom with the pork chop, you know, and the Mm -hmm. mashed potatoes and gravy and the apple pie with ice cream on it, because I looked at that thing every day for eight years. Mm -hmm. So that's very insightful. Yeah, and absolutely. And so I'll, I'll tack on to that, that the National School Lunch Program um, really serves that same educational function. And that's why we think it's so important to be focused on that area, because, you know, our youth are being educated implicitly on how how to put together healthy meals. And that will stay with them as they go forward in life. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, providing the education of one, you can be very healthy and vegan and get all the nutritional requirements that are that are appropriate for any stage of life but also you know just sort of the nuts and bolts of how to do that what nuts and legumes are good what types of soy products are appropriate as a meat replacer things like that um so yeah i mean i was interestingly reading an article this morning which sort of from the opposite side of this uh conversation was making this very point um there are some groups in Pennsylvania that were discussing um, milk in schools. And, you know, the, the sentiment from the dairy advocacy groups is, you know, if, if kids aren't drinking, you know, flavored or high whole milk, these tasty milks at school, they're not going to go on to be lifelong customers of ours. So it's pretty expre- it's explicit on the industry side that um, using these supplemental nutrition programs that are aimed at children is a very effective, um, I guess I'll call it a marketing tool because, again, they're securing what they believe are lifelong customers going forward. So, yeah, the educational component can't be, uh, shouldn't be underestimated. Yeah, it's so interesting to me, Tyler, that there are people going vegan with maybe a few other little tweaks to that to save their lives. Their doctors have mm-hmm. said, you know, plant-based or Lipitor. And so they're doing it to live long and prosper while we're still having to argue with other people that it's adequate and won't harm people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's true. And, you know, the, the federal um, agencies that are tasked with gathering and presenting the scientific evidence on, on nutrition um, have come out and said categorically that vegan uh, diets are appropriate for all stages of life if, if done well, you know, if, if in a well-balanced manner, which is the case for any dietary pattern needs to be well-balanced. Of course. So how is this for you, for the ALDF, more than just an argument about diet options? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, the Animal Legal Defense Fund, our our mission is to, um, you know, advocate for the interests and protect the lives of animals through the legal system. So 
a lot of my work is focused on areas in the marketplace which artificially inflates demand for animal-based products um, or stifles the ability of plant-based humane products to, to fill those areas where consumers are more and more concerned about those issues. So, you know, we're focused here, A, because we think this is an artificial subsidy on particularly the dairy industry. Um, but also what I said before of, you know, educating children about the benefits and the sort of ease with which they can have a more plant-forward diet or a fully plant-based diet. Um, you know, it's also really important that students who are already vegan or vegetarian and are availing themselves of the school lunch programs, they have all the same nutritional needs and requirements as their fellow students, and yet if they're abiding by a vegetarian or vegan diet are likely not meeting those nutritional requirements because they're being served, you know, meat products and dairy products to, to fill those nutritional qualifications. So for students who want to stick to their, you know, choices, be it health-based or ethical-based or both, um, it can be difficult for them to, to get the nutrition they need, and then that can impact their performance in school and confidence and all sorts of other things. So it's another reason why we're focusing here. Good for you. So how about parents and other people who care about kids? What can they do to help more vegan foods uh, get into schools? Yeah, excellent question. So I think the biggest thing that people can do is just to engage with the local school administrators, local school boards, um, to request more vegan options. Uh, states have significant um, discretion, and, and, and while participation in the National School Lunch Program is technically voluntary, it's not really because there's so much money available through it. Um, so anyway, you know, engaging with local decision makers is, is the best place to start because they really are the ones that, that will determine what ends up on students' plates. And there are certain barriers to providing fully vegan meals, but it's possible. Um, and so with, you know, advocacy from the grassroots level, there's going to be that provides the impetus or the pressure to make those decisions and move away what, from what is otherwise a very sort of easy and ossified process of just following the menus that are provided by the federal government so that you're insured to meet the program requirements, for example. Going out and making your own recipes requires a bit of effort, but again, with the, the motivation provided by parents and local activists, that is much more likely to happen. Um, I'd also say it's really, you know, important to look at whether uh, your student school offers or has implemented the offer versus serve program. So ask your student if they are able to reject the dairy milk that they're offered. And if not, you should request that the school implement that program. And finally, I'd, I'd really encourage parents um, to avail themselves of this uh, what I described as a permission slip. So every state might have a slightly different form, but you know, inquire what would be required of you as the parent to articulate the special dietary need of your student that would um, allow them to get a non-dairy uh, milk option. Wonderful. Those would be sort of the, the main things I would suggest. Thank you. And, and you're reminding me that I want to put in a plug for my friends at New York Coalition for Healthy School Food, Amy Hamlin and her group. They are doing so many amazing things throughout the state of New York, and they're also always offering themselves as a model for anybody who wants to do some of these things elsewhere. That's New York Coalition for Healthy School Food. So, Tyler, I want to move a little bit outside your absolute area of expertise to a couple of other things that ALDF is working on. 
and something that is really interesting to me because I'm a writer and I'm a word person and I think words are really important. So ALDF has recently filed a lawsuit along with Tofurky to ensure that meat alternatives can be called meat. What's up with all that? <laughs> yeah, so um, several months ago, the Missouri State Legislature passed a law which criminalizes the use of the term meat on products um, if it's, quote, not derived or harvested um, or derived from harvested production livestock or poultry. So in other words, slaughtered animals. And the, the ostensible purpose for this law is to ensure um, that consumers aren't being misled. So essential, you know, truthful advertising is the, the purported reason for the law. But looking into the legislative history and sort of the background of this, ALDF and the UCLA of Missouri has joined this as a, um, attorneys, and the Good Food Institute is the other plaintiff along with Tofurky. Um, you know, we, we all have the position that um, consumers are not misled by the plant-based products that have been on the market since the 80s. Um, and they will not be misled by what are known as clean meats, um, or known by various terms, but clean meats that will be coming to the market in the near future. So those are meats um, produced through animal cell culture technologies. And that is so fascinating, and I think that's going to make such a difference. And I can understand why the meat industry <laughs> would feel threatened. <laughs> but, of course, I hope you guys win and set precedents and do all sorts of amazing things as you are wont to do. Now, something else that you've been involved with as an organization is to fight the ag-gag laws. And I'm always trying to keep up with how many states are there and where do we stand with ag-gag? And for anybody who doesn't know about that, can you just explain what it is? Sure. So ag-gag laws are laws um, that have been implemented in a variety of states, I believe, and don't hold me to this, I believe it's nine states so far have passed ag-gag laws of one form or another. And essentially they, in a variety of different ways, criminalize investigations into agricultural facilities. So some of them operate by um, just flat out making it illegal to disseminate information obtained through employment um, when your employer did not consent to the recording of that material. Others make it a crime to not report animal welfare incidences within 24 hours, making it impossible to put together an appropriate case and investigation that it's a systemic problem at a facility, for example. Um, so these laws are designed to stifle transparency in animal agriculture and ensure that consumers don't know what's going on behind closed doors and producers can sort of continue business as usual despite the fact that consumers really want something different. So that's kind of their, that's their purpose. And as is probably obvious, that's a problem for the Animal Legal Defense Fund because we advocate strenuously for transparency in the market and want consumers to be, especially conscientious consumers who want to vote with their dollar, we want them to be able to do that. So getting these laws struck down as unconstitutional um, has been rather successful so far. Um, primarily as, a, as an abridgment of, of the First Amendment's protection of, of freedom of speech and freedom of association. So, Wonderful. May, may they all be struck down. So, yes, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tyler, I, I want to talk about your profession. 
So I know that there are people listening who are attorneys and some of them are kind of burned out with the kind of law they're practicing. I know there are a lot of idealistic young people who want to go into law for animals or for some human rights cause or something like that. How realistic is it to practice the kind of law that you practice? I think it's totally realistic, and it depends on exactly what you're looking for. There are plenty of, you know, private practice attorneys who have their uh, quote-unquote day job um, who then use their, their free time or their extra sort of their pro bono work to focus on animal issues. Um, so there's certainly that option. Um, you're not incorrect to sort of imply that it can be difficult to find a full-time paying job that is focused solely on animal issues, uh, but they certainly exist. Um, and there's more and more need for people to work in this field. Um, so if someone wanted to get involved with this and weren't able to, um, I would encourage them to, to start up their own operation if possible or you know, organize themselves with some other like-minded individuals and get their own projects going because there's so much more work to be done than there are attorneys doing the work. Um, so that's certainly not the bottleneck. Aha. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> what, what was your story? How, how did you end up doing this? Yeah, so I, um, during law school, uh, knew that I was uh, very interested in environmental and, and uh, non-human animal issues. So my purpose for going to law school was to pursue this type of work. Um, and I attended a school that um, has had the, the first animal law program and still the most robust animal law program. Um, so I, had, I was very lucky to have access to a lot of professors and a lot of mentors that were involved in this field already. Um, and what so school when I came, was that? Uh, Lewis and Clark Law School in Portland, Oregon. Okay. And they have the Center for Animal Law Studies, which was the first program, uh, I believe, dedicated to, to animal law in the country. Um, so great history there and, and, yeah, just great faculty and, and support. Um, so, I mean, even without that, I think that, you know, anyone who's in law school, um, certainly looking for summer positions and what have you, there's a whole host of organizations that they should consider, uh, Mercy for Animals, Compassion Over Killing, Humane Society of the United States, or any of its various affiliates. Animal Legal Defense Fund has summer and semester clerkships. So just really looking for those opportunities to get linked into the community during school would be really helpful. And then again, if you're a practicing attorney, um, ALDF has a pro bono network that we'd love for you to join if you're not already a part of it. Um, but otherwise, just keeping your eyes open for those opportunities to provide some pro bono support um, in this field is always, ah. again, always needed. Oh, thank you. And thank you for all this terrific information about schools and for parents and for everybody who cares about animals and sanity. Thanks for all you do. So the website is ALDF.org. Their Animal Legal Defense Fund on Facebook and Instagram. We'll put all of those URLs on the, um, the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. So do take a look at those. Next week, we're going to have animal rights musician Michael Heron. We might even have some music for you. You never know. And we're also going to be bringing on... Dr. Will Bolsowitz, who is a medical doctor and a GI specialist. There seems to be an epidemic of people who just have 
problems with their guts. They have problems digesting food, even really young people. And he is going to tell us all about that and how eating plants and certain kinds of plants can really be helpful there. And also, I want to let you know, as you listen to podcasts and like those, that I have been on several as a guest lately. One is called Eat for the Planet. That is Nils Zacharias's podcast. He was a guest on this show not too long ago. And we have a really in-depth conversation about veganism, vegan business, being a vegan entrepreneur. I was also on a show called The One-Way Ticket, where you get a one-way ticket to any place in history or on the planet or an imaginary place. So if you want to know where I'd go and where I'd spread veganism, check out the one-way ticket. And everybody, thank you so much for being part of this program. Thanks to Unity Online Radio for hosting this show, to Jeff and Louie, our engineers, and most of all, to you, our listeners. God bless you. Eat your veggies. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Since 1977, Omega Institute in New York's beautiful Hudson Valley has hosted some of the best spiritual teachers and social visionaries, sharing their messages of hope, healing, and transformation. On the Dropping In podcast, hosted by Emmy Award-winning producer Callie Alpert, you will enjoy in-depth interviews and conversations with people like Pema Chodron, Jack Kornfield, John Kabat-Zinn, and many others on the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Also, check out the video series on Spotify.